Let's generate our motivation and trying to have a sense of equanimity, of equal-hearted and open care and concern for all beings. Then let's realize that there is something we can do about their misery. Of course, we can do things this life that would help them. But the major way, what we're trying to do is to be able to prevent their misery by teaching them about karma, the law of karma and its effects, and then to be able to prevent their rebirth in samsara altogether by giving them the teachings on selflessness emptiness and being able to prevent them from just remaining in personal peace by also giving them the teachings on bodhicitta but before we can share these teachings with others we have to understand them well ourselves so we have to study and reflect And of course, the more we're able to put them into practice and integrate our mind with the teachings, the more powerful it would be when we do instruct others. And of course, if we're on the bodhisattva path, then after we attain Buddhahood, then we'll have many special powers that will enable us to work for the benefit of sentient beings quite effectively. And so for all those reasons, we're aiming for full enlightenment for the benefit of all these beings. And that's one of the great ways of benefiting them and doing something to improve their situation because we care. So generate that bodhicitta intention now. So I think that point that came up in the discussion about, uh, you know, when we see others suffering and wondering, feeling like we can't do anything about it, and that we've somehow forgotten our spiritual practice. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how we forget our spiritual practice in those, those moments when we most need it. Um, similarly, you know, if there might be somebody in our family or a dear friend who is very ill, and we might feel, oh, you know, there's nothing I can do, but there's a lot we can do. And I mean, not only things we can do to benefit the person this life, if they're sick, taking care of them or bringing them food or whatever, but benefiting them through our dharma practice. So if we know people who are ill or approaching surgery or whatever, you know, we should be doing the medicine Buddha practice for them and doing the white Tara practice for them rather than sit and worry. Yeah, then we should do something. And similarly, if somebody has passed away rather than, you know, just sit and and go over the situation again and again in our mind, we should do some practice and dedicate it for that person so that we send them on to their next life with loving kindness and dedicating our merit for their benefit. Because if we create merit and dedicate it for them, that will act as something that will instigate their own merit to ripen. 
Whereas if we just, you know, fall asleep or get depressed or something like that, then they could have some merit that could be on the verge of ripening but because we didn't do any practice and dedicate it for them. And maybe it just, the merit doesn't ripen at that time. Okay? So really, um, you know, don't forget your spiritual practice. Don't just think it's, um, you know, what we do here on retreat. And then in our daily life we forget it. We have to to really bring it in and and use it. And um, Sarah was telling me about uh, when her father passed away a month or two ago and how much she appreciated the Dharma at that time because she really remembered to practice and so you know she was with her father as uh, he was dying and she was doing mantra and she was you know stable and present and you know able to really handle the situation quite well so when you know things come up in our life don't forget the Dharma that's the time when we really need to put it into practice okay and so we're able to put it into practice because we make a habit of practicing it even when we're not in crisis situations yeah so we like to to coast and then when a crisis happens we want a pill you know but it doesn't work like that. We have to build up that energy gradually all the time. And then it's there for us when we need it, when a crisis happens. Okay? So it's, it's quite important to, to really um, keep this in mind. Okay, back to great compassion here. Um, so we talked about uh, yesterday we, we did verses uh, 10, 11, and 12 we talked about how compassion was a great compassion is the thing that uh, is a quite distinguishing defining character of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha you know, what makes them very unique kind of refuges and how they're being able to be the refuges they are uh, is dependent upon the great they're having the great compassion and then verse 13 says kind of sums it up it says there is a great deal of difference between one who does possess you you being great compassion one who does possess you in one's mind stream and those who do not like the Supreme Teacher and Shariputra, the former of whom restored the life's breath of the swan while the latter could not. Okay, so really talking about, you know, great compassion as the distinguishing characteristic between the Supreme Teacher, that is the Buddha, and Shariputra, who was a hearer arhat. And the Buddha had uh, psychic powers due to his omniscient mind that Shariputra did not because Shariputra had attained the state of uh, his own liberation but had not uh, completed the path to full awakening, full enlightenment and I tried to find out the exact circumstance of the story that's being referred to I googled, you know, Buddha and Swan and Shariputra, and you know, because many times these um, there's a lot of the Pali Canon that has been translated and is on the web, and I thought I could maybe find the story, but I was unsuccessful at finding it. So uh, the this one footnote says that it's in the of the Naya scripture in the Tibetan canon but that isn't translated into English so I wasn't able to get the story there anyway it's pointing out a difference between an Arhat and a fully enlightened Buddha um, and the abilities that the Buddha has due to great compassion and the great compassion having caused the omniscience which gave the Buddha these great powers so then verse 14 says 
Hence it is you, great compassion, who liberates one from all fears, who is the sole and definitive source of refuge for the world with its gods and other beings. Okay? So I like this thing. Hence it is you, great compassion, who liberates one from all fears. Okay, yesterday we were talking a little bit about fear, you know, in terms of the four uh, practices of the Shramana and how we feel fear and then we retaliate or we beat somebody back or whatever. And how great compassion is what uh, liberates us from all fears. Okay, so think a little bit, you know, how is compassion going to liberate you from fear? Now, how would that work that compassion liberates you from fear? Okay. People could very easily say, well, compassion actually creates more fear because I see others suffering. Okay, that's the wrong answer. Okay. How, how is compassion going to liberate us from fear? What is it that causes fear? It's the self-grasping, isn't it? And the self-centeredness. The self-grasping that thinks there's a real solid concrete me and the self-centeredness that then thinks this me is the most important thing in the world and has to be protected at any cost. So when we have this whole idea of this solid me and all this fear about it getting harmed then our mind really proliferates in fear doesn't it we're fear of the self getting harmed we're afraid the self won't get what it wants when we have something nice we're afraid we're going to lose it now when we want something we're afraid if we get it it won't be as good as we thought it was going to be now all this fear that we have, all this anxiety that we have, all this worry that we have, is all based on self-centeredness. Okay. But think about that for a minute. Because we have a lot of anxiety, don't we? Anybody suffer from anxiety? Yeah. How about fear? Yeah. Dread? Depression, worry. Yeah? Okay, if we look, what lies if we take anxiety, worry, and fear? Okay, because they're all kind of related, aren't they? Yeah? They kind of overlap in some ways. It's, it's interesting when you try and think what's the difference between them sometimes hard to pinpoint how is worry different than fear you know seems to me worry is when you're going around and around in circles and fear is when you've reached a conclusion that that bad thing is going to happen <laughs> you know maybe something like that I'm not sure but you know it's interesting to explore in, in our own self you know how do we know when we're worried? How do we know when we're anxious? How do we know when we're fearful? Yeah. could be very interesting. Maybe do a little writing, you know, and a little, you know, have, have three sheets of paper and just write, you know, kind of, okay, what are situations where I get worried? What, when, which ones do I get anxious? And which ones do I get fearful? And then see what common threads you find in there it seems to me one common thread is that worry, anxiety and fear are not in the present are they? and they're not in the past because you don't worry about the past you're not afraid of the past you know it's over yeah it's already happened so it seems to me worry, anxiety, and fear are all future-oriented. Yeah. So the future that hasn't happened yet, 
we worry about in the present yeah. and it's been my experience that what that the worry I have in the present is much worse than when I have the actual experience if it finally happens okay so my worry fear and anxiety about the future that I experience now are much more painful in my personal experience than if the worst case scenario I've been dreading actually happens okay why is that because the worry for an anxiety are very dependent on our imagination and we are all horror story screenwriters and we will write the most abysmal dreadful fearful horror story on a moment's notice and we will firmly believe it's going to happen that's fear or you know we might uh, worry about it happening you know and that's kind of anxiety but at the moment actually nothing is going on at the moment that our mind is so overwhelmed by anxiety worry and fear we're sitting here in a room where we're quite safe with like-minded people and nothing special is happening okay even you're in the hospital room you're worried about something happening at that very moment if you stop and look around you know okay here I am yeah nothing terrible is happening at this moment but you see we get so absorbed in the dramas that we write that we script and that we star in okay, that we make ourselves quite miserable in the whole thing yeah. and then we run around saying how can I get rid of my anxiety and fear and worry and every suggestion somebody offers us we reply with yes but okay that's our famous phrase yes but you don't really understand my anxiety my fear my worry are really serious and this situation is definitely going to happen so please tell me how to not have anxiety fear and worry but actually I don't want to give them up either yeah. why don't we want to give up our anxiety fear and worry because our ego gets so much mileage out of it we get so much mileage out of being anxious and afraid don't we there's such a feeling of I exist you know Descartes said I think they for, therefore I exist I am no I think therefore I am you can tell he came from centuries ago now it's I'm anxious therefore I am and it's true isn't it how do we get this feeling of me that's so strong that we revolve around all day long it's because we stoke our anxiety and the idea of being peaceful and letting go of the anxiety, fear and worry is scary because who am I going to be if I'm not the person who's anxious what am I going to do with my time and energy if I don't sit here and worry about what's going to happen to me and the people I care about what am I going to do with my time you know this is the way that the ego the ignorant mind thinks and it just keeps us buzzing around like that you know for no reason at all 
Does our fear do any good? Does it prevent the situation from happening? If anything, the fear brings the situation. Does anxiety prevent it from happening? Does worry prevent it from happening? definitely makes it much worse my parents are worriers yeah I am the child of a worrier (laughs) not a warrior a worrier (laughs) yeah now do you remember when you were kids and your parents worried about you how did you feel did it did their worry help you at all did it prevent you from doing stupid things that were dangerous no if anything it made you do those stupid things that were dangerous so when we worry you know does does our worry benefit the other person no we are just totally wasting our time we could be sitting there doing medicine Buddha white Tara we could be you know doing something to benefit others but instead we just stay in the stagnant cesspool of worry fear and anxiety and that cesspool gets expensive too once you start buying all the drugs to medicate it but it's just our mind going round and around and around uselessly so I think you know one antidote and I'm not going to let you reply with yes but is think about the defects of worry anxiety and fear and just think about the faults of them and you know think about really meditate on these faults I mean this is one of the things we see throughout the long run meditations where we meditate on the benefits of some things and the faults of other things meditate on the faults of these things like what happens to you when you get overcome by worry, fear and anxiety and then remember that when they come up and press the pause button and say I'm not going there because I know what happens to me when I let my mind go there so I'm not going there and then think of the benefits of compassion okay and how your heart feels when you have compassion in it and how useful what you do is when you do something out of compassion and how your mind can accept a situation in the present and at the same time try and change it in the future when you have compassion (coughs) and so you really think about the benefits of compassion and then if worry, fear and anxiety come you think you remember their faults so you stop them you remember the benefits of compassion and you cultivate compassion in your mind when compassion's in your mind then you're going to be actively able to do something that will benefit others and benefit yourself in the situation because your mind is not going to be all tied up in the uselessness of worry, anxiety and fear Hmm? we had uh, uh, you know every winter we close the abbey for three months and we do a three month retreat so one man came a few years back and uh, he had anxiety attacks or panic attacks you know quite regularly about different things and uh, at the end of the retreat he shared with the group that he had really gotten some insight into his panic attacks because he had begun to see how he was telling himself a story before the attack and during the attack and so that it was his way of thinking he discovered 
that brought on that panic attack. And so he began to uh, be able to notice, you know, with this kind of checking introspective mind, when his mind started to think like that and then stop it and turn his attention to something else and thereby he reduced the frequency of his panic attacks. Hmm? Yeah, it was quite something. Were you there? You weren't there at that retreat. Yeah. It was, it was really quite quite something to hear him tell that story. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, I, I really think that, that if we substitute, whenever we're in a negative state of mind, because our negative states of mind are unrealistic. Okay? As soon as you're involved in anxiety, fear, worry, anger, resentment, your mind is not perceiving reality. Remember that. And next time you're angry, you're filled with resentment or worrying, say to yourself, my mind is not perceiving reality. Okay. And we're not even talking here about ultimate reality. <laughs> we're just even talking conventional reality. Yeah, my mind is not perceiving reality. When I'm angry, I'm exaggerating the negative qualities of someone or something. Okay? My mind's not perceiving the reality of who that person is. Yeah. Similarly, when I'm attached, I'm exaggerating the positive qualities. My mind is not seeing the reality, just conventionally, of what that person is. Yeah. When my mind is filled with fear, I'm not seeing the reality of the situation. Because right now, nothing is going on. And even if the situation did happen, I clearly have resources that I could use to deal with it. Okay. When I'm anxious, my mind is not perceiving in reality. My mind is in la-la land. Okay? Yeah. Because what's happening when we're in the middle of fear, anxiety, and those things... Are, are we here right now with our, our conventional reality in this room? No. Our mind is all over the place. You know, in, we're, we're doing our horror story creative writing. Yeah. The body's here. The mind is in la-la land. No wonder we're miserable. The present is not so bad if we ever happen to be in it. <laughs> you know? It's just that we're not in it, and so we make it awful. Okay? So try and bring yourself back to what's happening now, and fill your heart with compassion. Because if there's compassion in our, in our heart, we always feel like there's something we can do to better the situation. You know? I think one of the things about anxiety, fear, and worry is we feel helpless. You know? We don't feel helpless about weaving this yarn. Yeah. But we feel helpless about resolving what happens when, if the yarn should become reality. So we stay there in our helplessness. Okay, which of course feels pretty lousy. Whereas when we have actual compassion, then we know there's a lot we can do to contribute to a situation. There's always something we can do right there and then. We may not be able to fix everybody's problem, but that isn't our job. You know, maybe our job is just to be kind, is just to smile is just to look somebody in the eyes with care. Yeah. There's so many things we can do in a situation, small things that can really benefit others, that we miss out on completely when our minds 
are in la-la land. Yeah. And so that's why if we press the stop button on the la-la video and come back to the present and generate compassion, you know, then automatically something happens. You're able to do something. Because with compassion, although we're viewing suffering sentient beings, we never feel helpless or hopeless. Because we always know that suffering comes due to causes, and those causes can be eliminated. Why? Because those causes, number one, are not the nature of the mind, and number two, antidotes exist to counteract them. So when we know those two things, then we know that there's always something to do. And so compassion can have an optimistic uh, viewpoint. Also, with compassion, the object of our attention is other sentient beings. Sometimes we have compassion for ourselves, of course. But, you know, we, we really try to extend it beyond ourselves to other sentient beings. When we are worried, anxious, and fearful, the object of our concentration may seem to be other sentient beings. Oh, I'm wondering if they're going to die. I'm wondering if they're in a car accident. I wonder if, if they're miserable. I wonder this. I wonder that. You know, it seems to be that our ang- that is focused on others. But actually, if you look a little bit closer, who's the, the, the main object of concern in anxiety, worry, and fear? Ourselves, isn't it? It's so self-centered. You know, we're stuck in our own head worrying about whatever appears important to me. Why? Because I am the center of the universe. I exist. I worry, therefore I am. I'm anxious, therefore I am. I'm afraid, therefore I have an identity and I have something to tell people when I meet them. Because otherwise, what do I have to say? If I don't tell people my problems, I might have to actually be relaxed and receptive and friendly. (laughs) Okay. But if I have a problem, I have an identity. So, you know, if we can drop all that, because it's all just totally fueled by that self-centeredness and the self-grasping ignorance. And instead, you know, have compassion. Okay? Because I think, you know, so many of our our modern um, psychological ailments, I think, can be remedied by compassion. Yes, but <laughs> not my psychological ailments. His Holiness, the, the, the Dalai Lama, uses compassion as an antidote to low self-esteem. Okay, and we kind of go, wait a minute. How can how is compassion an antidote to low self-esteem? Low self-esteem is when you don't have compassion for yourself. You don't love yourself. Yeah. So don't I have to have compassion for myself before I can have compassion for others? Yes, we need to have compassion for ourselves. But right now we don't know how to have compassion for ourselves. All we know is self-obsession and self-indulgence. So it was a good first step to get us out of ourselves and to realize that actually there's the rest of the universe that isn't I. Compassion is a very good tool because when we're focused on others, then our own problems and difficulties really get put into uh, perspective, don't they? Whereas, you know, we can find anything to obsess about. And we will. You know? We stub our little toe. 
And like, I mean, I can just invent incredible horror stories when I step my little toe. It's like, oh, it hurts so much. You know, I've done this before. Maybe I broke my toe. Oh, what happened if I broke my toe? I don't have health insurance. I'm still going to have to go to the doctor. I'm going to have these extraordinary doctor bills. How am I going to pay for them? You know, I'm going to have to take out a loan, but I don't have any credit. You know, and the banks don't have any money to give me any loan for my pay off the doctor bills. Okay? And so what am I going to do? And then my little toe, it's going to turn gangrenous. And then it's going to fall off. And I'm going to have even more doctor bills. And then I won't be able to walk properly. And I'm going to need a cane and crutches. But I won't have any money to get them. And then the rest of my foot's going to turn gangrenous. And then my whole leg will. And, you know, by next week I'm going to be dead because of this. You know, we can do this, can't we? Can't we? You know, we laugh about it now. But when we stub our little toe, our mind takes off. You know? And it writes a worry story all about me, I, my, and mine. You know? Meanwhile, there's people who are starving. There's people who really have gangrenous legs who have to face amputation. There's, you know people who are in incredible mental pain we can't see any of it all we can see is our own little toe you know which is the biggest crisis in the country today so when we actually have compassion it pulls us out of ourselves and like oh my goodness there's other sentient beings my drama is actually quite manageable especially if I stop obsessing about it it might actually shrink you know and so compassion is very very effective that way otherwise I mean without compassion we are so ego sensitive somebody doesn't look at us like oh this person that I like, they don't look at me. They didn't say hello to me. Oh, something must be wrong with me. I knew it. Oh, it's all this shame I felt since I was a child. <laughs> I'm just totally worthful, worth, worthless, you know. All the time when I was in school, I was the opposite of the socials, and I was an outcast, and nobody liked me. I've never fit in my whole life. Nobody's ever looked at me. Nobody's ever cared at me, cared about me. I, there's, I can't relate to human beings. Something's really wrong with me, you know. And, and we work ourselves all up and get good and depressed, don't we? You know, we can do that. No time at all. Yeah? All because somebody didn't smile at us and say hello in the morning. Yeah? A little bit self-centered, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Just a little bit. So, you know, I think it's quite good. You know, when we see situations like that, then we're able to really point at the self-centered thought and say, you are my enemy. Look what you're doing. You know, you're making me totally miserable, self-centered thought. You know, you go away. If you're going to spray rage at anything, spray it at the self-centered thought. (laughs) Not at sentient beings. And and you're just really seeing, you know, know, I'm not giving into the self-centered thought because it's not me, but it makes me miserable by pretending to be me. And so I'm going to kick it out and invite great compassion in. And what a change. Can, can you even get a sense of the change in your mood that would happen if you kick out self-centeredness and invite great compassion in? How your mood would change? You know? All that low self-esteem, all that feeling of being worthless and full of shame and unlovable. Where is it? 
when you have great compassion, that stuff can't be in your mind at the same time. Can't be in the mind at the same time as compassion. Okay. So I think really trying to open our hearts, you know, to compassion, it's it's such a, a wonderful gift we give ourselves. His Holiness, um, you know, when he talks about uh, having compassion and acting with compassion, he think he says most people think, you know, if I act with compassion, other people get most of the benefit from my compassionate actions, but I'm sacrificing something. He said, actually, that's not true. When I act with compassion, I get 100% of the benefit of compassion. And other people, maybe they get some benefit, maybe not. It's not true. It depends on how open they are. But he says, when I act with compassion, I'm the main beneficiary of it. But it's so strange because we usually think if I act with compassion, I'm the loser and somebody else is the beneficiary. But it's not like that. When we have great compassion in our mind, our mind is so full of hope and optimism and energy. And we can do so much. You know, and we feel so connected to sentient beings. I just had this image of, you know, how people sometimes do journaling and we write our problems down in, in a journal, you know, this, this, worry, fear, anxiety, this, 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 this. And then you have a big rubber stamp, big rubber stamp that says, great compassion. And you write in your journal and then you take your stamp and you go, boom. <laughs> You know, and these bright red letters saying, great compassion, come up. And you can't even see what you wrote in your journal about all your self-pity problems. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah? I think we should have, you know, a whole series of stamps, you know, really big chops, you know. In America, they call them chops. In Singapore, they call them a rubber stamp. They call it a chop, you know. So, you know, have one of those made. Great compassion. Yeah. And then when you have your to-do list, all those things that you feel so anxious about because you know you can never get them all done. You know? So you're going to worry about getting them all done even though you know you're never going to get them all done. And you just put great compassion. to-do list you approach with great compassion you know I have to go to the post office with great compassion great you know and then I have to go to the bank with great compassion because they really need compassion (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to the department store also with great compassion because they really need compassion. Yeah. So you do everything with great compassion on your whole to-do list. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, now you know what I want for my birthday. It's a pity I just had my birthday. <laughs> but you should also get yourself a stamp that's great compassion. No, but you can't give me one unless you get one for yourself. And unless you use one. Unless you use the one you got for yourself, you can't give one to me. (laughs) Okay. So. Okay. Hence it is you, great compassion, who liberates one from all fears who is the sole and definitive source of refuge for the world with its gods and other beings. Okay. 
So people tend to take refuge in the gods and the you know different divinities and so on. But actually those beings are mostly beings who are also caught in samsara. They're not, uh, they may help us, but they're not uh, a definitive object of refuge. They're not totally reliable. But compassion, okay, who is the sole and definitive source of refuge. That's really like His Holiness saying, my religion is compassion, is my religion is kindness, isn't it? Yeah, compassion is what we take refuge in. And so if you really see how compassion is tied to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, then whenever you're in a dangerous situation, whenever anything's happening in your life, and you take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you remember that if you boil it all down, you're taking refuge in great compassion. Okay. If you remember when you're taking refuge, when you're afraid, when you're in danger, when something important is happening and you're taking refuge, and you remember my refuge is in great compassion, then at that minute you transform your mind into great compassion. That's Dharma practice. That's unifying your mind with the object of refuge. So when we take refuge, it isn't, you know, Buddha, 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 please save me. You know, how is the Buddha going to save us? You know, by teaching us about great compassion. Because if we learn great compassion and transform our minds into great compassion, then our mind will save itself. If we trans- in the same way, if we transform our own mind into wisdom, then our mind becomes the true paths and true cessations that are, that are the Dharma refuge. Okay, that's how the Buddha helps us, how the Sangha helps us. In verse 15, the determination that the conqueror, the Lord Buddha, is a reliable individual comes down to a logical proof for which you, great compassion, are the reason. Okay, so this verse is, it is um, referring to a verse in uh, Dharmakirti's Compendium of Valid Cognition, um, or Pramana Samuchaya. Actually, I'm sorry, the Compendium of Valid Cognition, the Pramana Samuchaya, is by Dinaga, who uh, came before Dharmakirti. Dharmakirti wrote a commentary on Dinaga's Compendium of Valid uh, Cognition, which is called Pramavardaka, okay, which is a very famous text. They, they study it in the Tibetan monasteries. It's on logic and reasoning. Anyway, Dinaga opened his text, the Compendium of Reliable Cognition or Valid Cognition. He opened it by paying homage in the following way. It says, I bow to the one who has become reliable, intent on benefiting, on benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector. Actually, I think you should write this down. Okay, it's a very, very famous um, uh, line. You know, you'll come across it. Okay, I bow to the one who has become reliable. Comma. Intent on benefiting migrating beings. Comma. The teacher. Comma. The one gone to bliss. Comma. The protector. Okay, so this is the Haga. 
D-I-N-A-G-A, Dinaga's homage at the beginning, uh, his homage to the Buddha at the beginning of the Compendium of Reliable Cognition. Sometimes people translate it valid cognition. I've started doing reliable cognition. I think I think it's better. Mm-hmm. Is that translated? That whole text, I don't think the whole text is translated. John Dunn has translated six, um, some excerpts from it. Actually, he translated from Dharmakirti. He didn't translate Dinaga's text. So I don't know. Be, I don't know of a translation. We should see if someone somewhere has done it. Maybe some graduate student has done some chapters of it. Okay, so it reads, I bow, and these are all epitaphs of the Buddha, okay? I bow to the one who has become reliable. That's one epitaph of the Buddha, the one who has become reliable. Okay, intent on benefiting migrating beings. That's another epitaph of the Buddha. The teacher, the one gone to bliss, the protector. So actually, I'm going to save the explanation of this verse until tomorrow because it's be better to do it all all in in one sitting. But basically, what we're doing, what Dinaga is doing, is showing why the Buddha is a reliable guide. Okay, so the first one, I bow to the one who has become reliable. That's the conclusion. The Buddha is a reliable guide. Why is he a reliable guide? Because he's the one intent on benefiting migrating beings, the teacher, the one gone to bliss, and the protector. And so tomorrow I'll talk about these different epitaphs and how they fit together and how they prove that the Buddha is a reliable guide and how the source of all of this whole proof is great compassion. Okay. So the source of what makes the Buddha a reliable guide on the path to enlightenment is great compassion. And this and so that's what our author here in verse fifteen is referring to is uh do not this verse there. Okay. So let's sit quietly. And uh, maybe try replacing anxiety, fear, and worry with great compassion. Mm-hmm.